I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. When John O'Shales decided to start life over again, I bet he had no idea he would land in one of the world's most impressive saltwater fisheries. Now, as a guide in Exmouth, Australia, Jono spends his days figuring out the patterns of permit, queenfish, milkfish, billfish, and countless other species off Australia's west coast. I met with Jono for an unexpected visit at his home in Exmouth and was thrilled to have an opportunity to pick his brain and learn more about him and his findings. I grew up in South Africa, but I'm of British origin. My parents are British. Uh, I was born in Hong Kong. Oh, okay. (laughs) And um, I have a Chinese birth certificate. And now I've been in Australia for 20 years. So I'm from everywhere, but uh, I am through and through South African. Oh, I actually did not know any of that. I I knew that you've been in Australia for a long time, but I didn't know any of the the rest of it. Right, right. So, um, yeah, so I I don't really feel like I have a home as such. I'm, I'm from somewhere or... I think Exmouth right now is my home and I feel very grounded here, but 27 years in in Johannesburg and then uh, spent time in London. I've just spent eight years in Sydney before coming here and I've been here now for 10 years. Why Australia though? What brought you here? I was married to an Australian girl in uh, the early 2000s. We uh, relocated from South Africa to uh, Sydney and um, I was based in Sydney running graphic design and web design business. Did that for number of years and until I sort of got sick of it and I realized that that's not the direction that I should be taking in my life. When did fishing enter your life then? Or early on, age of nine or ten, I got invited to go fly fishing up to one of the syndicates up in uh, the high country in South Africa by a school friend of mine who I'm still in contact with. And um, it's just one of those things, you know, you just go fishing and then you just enjoy it. And you never think of yourself as a fisherman. It's just part of your life. You just sort of do it. And it's not, it's, it's not something you think, oh, yeah, well, I'll ever stop doing this. You just do it and you just enjoy it. And, you know, and the next thing you know, you're 44 years old and you've been fishing for three decades of your life. Like most people, I think, out there who've been fishing their whole lives, they get introduced to it as a young age. And ultimately, I mean, you know, most people fish just for fun and, 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 and you have a good time fishing and, and you know, life is you know, there on the side and then you, and you fish. And fortunately, I've reached that point in my life where I can fish every day and fish for my life. And it's now part of my life, which is great. So. But that's today. Where mm. and how, like, how did you make the transition from doing web work to being a professional angler? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, because it's completely contrast, isn't it? I've, um, I've done a lot of different things in, in, in my life and... Uh, one of the things that I always, always have done is always fished. I've always enjoyed fly fishing. And um, it was just, I, th- I think I reached that point in my life where you get everything stripped away. Business didn't work. I shut that. The marriage didn't work. We got divorced. And I just ended up in the point where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go fishing. I'm, I'm going to enjoy myself and um, I'm just going to follow fishing. And literally, I, the moment I did that, it was like sort of all the all the barriers and all the inhibitions in my life and all the things which you stop and you think, oh, I'm not going to do that. That's a risk. I don't want to do that. And I, I just let the whole lot go. And I said, well, I'm just going fishing. And, and, and the moment I did that, it, it became clear to me that this is what I should be doing. So initially I was just fly fishing and, 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 and just being a fly fisherman, not taking it too seriously. And then the moment I started taking it seriously in the sense that I wanted to be a, a professional fly fisherman and actually make it part of my life, everything sort of slotted in. 
when I was in Sydney, you know, you, you work, you work to, to go fishing. So, you, you know, I was, I was working and then you'd save your money and go on a big trip once or twice a year, like most people do, most anglers do that. And then to be able to sort of retire, as it were, from, from one life, and then accept another life of just being a fishing bum and then turning into a professional fisherman and now a guide, it's a pretty cool transition. But it's not, it's not an easy transition. You know, people often say, oh, yeah, you're, you're a guy, you're a fisherman, you're, you're, you know, you've got the best life. But it's, it's never an easy life. It's never an easy path to, you know, letting go of that safety rope, the net that you have in the cities, you know, the convenience of having everything there for you. And letting go of that and, and accepting a life in a small town, it's quite a change, but uh, I wouldn't change it for anything, really. What was the hardest part about doing it in Sydney, though? Because that is a lot different than Exmouth, and we're, we're going to talk about Exmouth and explain to the listener mm. uh, more about the town, but right. people can visualize what Sydney is like. Well, Sydney's a fantastic fishery. I mean, Australia in general is an amazing, amazing place to fly fish. And, and, and you know, it's surrounded by water. Obviously, it's a big island. But, you know, the, the Sydney thing is, is amazing for, for what it is. And a city with four and a half, five million people, to have schools of fish in the harbour and to be able to fish the structure and to be able to fish your channel markers or, or out in, in, in front offshore, there are, there are bigger fish. It's, it's amazing, but, you know, there are four and a half million people there. So, you know, I found myself, I think, I think when I started realizing that I had an, a fishing addiction or a fishing problem was, uh, you know, it's like nine o'clock on a Thursday morning and I'm out in the harbor fishing and I'm phoning the office, making sure that the work is carrying on and, and, and so on in the office. And I realized, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just lying to myself. I should just go fishing and, and wrap up the, the whole sort of city life and chasing that carrot that everyone seems to chase in life. But Sydney's a, Sydney's a fantastic place to fish. It's a fantastic place to live. And that provided me with a real sort of springboard and access to, you know, being able to pay for and go on, on big fishing trips and then come back and work and so on. By the time that I left Sydney, I literally was just driving across here, arriving here. I had no intention, when I say here, I'm, you know, we're in Western Australia, which is 5,000 k's away, so uh, I had no intention really of being a, a professional guide or a professional fisherman at all. It just, it, it just happened. It just sort of flowed like that. Tell me how it happened. Okay, so you're in the downpouring <laughs> of your life. Mm. You go through a divorce. Mm. It had to be hard. Mm. You quit your job, mm. or unless you got fired, which makes it even harder. Well, I wrapped up the job. It was I was the director of the company, so you know we were working in the real estate sector. The company I was working for was heavily involved with the American uh, real estate market. So at the time when the global financial crisis wrapped up, I pulled out. Luckily, pulled out unscathed, and that was a time when I was like, "Cool, I've learned a lot about business. I've learned a lot about people. I've learned a lot about myself. What I like, what I don't like." Literally at that time. You're right at the bottom. You're right at the bottom of the of the curve. All right, out in, like an angel, literally like an angel. Out, out came a little spark of a little spark of inspiration in the form of Jack Charlton from from Mako Reels and well, Charlton as he has your Charlton Signature Series Reels. And Jack reached out and and made contact with me right at that time. I, I couldn't believe it. I thought initially I was like, well, this guy's. Uh, this is a joke. Yeah. You know, this is a, this is a joke. This is some kind, kind of joke. Kind of a big deal. I thought this is a, this is this is ridiculous. I'm just a fisherman. Why is why is Jack Charlton contacting me? And what had happened was, you know, Jack had 
was in the process of releasing his uh, his new series of reels, his Mako reels. This is 2006 and 2007. And um, he'd seen some of the stuff that I'd done. He'd seen some of the trips that I'd been on and, and the way I was documenting the trips. I was able to to put together some really nice web pages and web, really nice trip reports with videos and so on. You know, this is 10, 12 years ago. Wait, so this is before Exmouth? Yeah. So why were you putting together and documenting trips? I had an idea to put a website together that marketed the entire of, of Australia. So put all the guides and put all the locations and everything, all the species. Uh, like a booking agent. Like that, yeah. We had a business plan behind it and, and it, we were going to build a, a single uh, website that had a, because I've got 10 years of web design and marketing experience. And a couple of my buddies were like, well, let's do this idea and we'll put all the guides and we'll put all the information in one place. And on the back of that, I started putting these trip reports of the different trips that I was going on. And I thought this is a great place to launch the product you know, and, and create a bit of traffic. So I had these trip reports coming back from Christmas Island and I had uh, all these nice videos and photos and so on and I'd, I'd put these trip reports together that nobody had seen any format like that where you could actually read the report, click on the video and watch some video of what was going on with the fishing and so on. And at the bottom of the page was a facility to register your interest if you wanted to see more. And the guy who I was doing it with Stuart in Sydney, who's a really good friend of mine, who I was involved in in this business idea, he contacted me, he said, I think you should have a look at the registrations coming through on the page. I thought, well, okay. And there were like four pages of, of, of email addresses coming through going like, this is amazing, you're doing a good job, this is phenomenal, you know, wow, great fishing. And there was Jack Charlton's email in there. And he, he, he'd said, he'd said, he said, this is fantastic and if you keep this up, I'm gonna have to send you a Mako reel. And that, that's how it all started. You know, that was the catalyst right there. And I thought, wow, I mean, this guy's joking. So I Skyped Jack and I got on Skype and I think the first phone call we had on, online was for about two and a half hours. And we spoke very little about fishing. We spoke about personal stuff and the, our backgrounds, our life. And Jack and I were very, very similar in many, many regards. And I think that he identified that. And you know, that was the catalyst right there. That was the, that was the little kid in, 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 in life being thrown being thrown the, the uh, you know, the, a change, something happens. And it's from that, that, you know, you, you steer the boat in another direction. You go, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going this way now. This is what I'm gonna do. Hey, I mean, if Jack Charlton believes in you and he's got his thumbs up, I must be doing something right. Jack opened many doors for me and, and I, you know, which I'm eternally grateful. And so he introduced me to different companies and different people. So initially there was all this, volume of, of, of interest going on, but I had nothing to do with it. I couldn't do anything with the interest that was being gained. And I realized if I went fishing and I took myself on a trip and I documented the whole trip and, I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and off I went, it would create awareness and it would create a, a buzz around our website project that we had. So now I had, you know, now I had the backing of some, some heavy hitters and I thought this is great. And I'll never forget as well, Jack had said to me, he's like, listen, I just want you to use a, 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 one of the Mako reels and, and just go ahead and use it and give me some feedback on it. I said, I, I'm just in Sydney. I'm, I'm just sort of fishing and messing around in the harbor and stuff. And he said, yeah, that's okay. Just, just let me know and let me know what you think of it. Oh, okay, well, I got the reel and I, I used it and, and you know, needless, needless to say, it's a fantastic piece of gear. And you know, Jack was just such a humble gentleman. He, 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 said, he said, listen, if and when you're ready, 
Uh, we, I would really like it if you would um, uh, join us and join the, the pro team of Mako, but only when you're ready, when you feel like you want to, you know. I thought, why, why is this guy offering this to me? This is crazy. I, I'm just a, a nobody fisherman, really. You know, I, just, I can fish. But it, I'm, I looked on the website, and there's all these guys with these credentials and all these achievements and things that they've done. I got onto Skype. I said, Jack, I said, Jack. I said, these guys got world records. These guys have got these credentials. These guys have got everything going on. I, I, I'm not like that. I, you sure you got the right guy? <laughs> he said, I got the right guy. Don't worry about that. He said, I, I got the right guy. He, and, and, and by the way, there's more reels on the way. <laughs> oh, man, Jack. You know? So, you know, this is, this is the stuff that, uh, this is the turning point in life. You're going down one path and, and the light comes on in the other path, showing you that path. It's not, it's not too difficult to know that that's where I should be going. So I had a four by four and I had, I had a boat and um, I packed it all up and on my own, I drove out of Sydney and uh, I drove across, I headed west and uh, it took me six days to drive across the continent. The idea was just basically go fishing and uh, meet people along the way and uh, get a bunch of my friends and my family to come along and meet me along the way. And we'll just like, you know, have a, a ball fly fishing. I mean, that's why not? And at the same time, document everything on the, on the back of the website that we were going to develop and build. But again, it was interest that I had nothing, I, I couldn't do anything with it. People going, man, we want to come and hang out with you. Like you sound like a, you know, the guy we want to go fish with kind of thing. So eventually I, I realized, okay, well, I've, I need to do something about this. So I, I, I set up base here in Exmouth in Western Australia. Um, but it wasn't your destination. It wasn't the destination. Did, did you no. have a spot in mind when you made that trek? I have a map here actually in the house here that's got all these pink dots on it. Mm -hmm. And when I was in Sydney, I set all these pink dots all over the map everywhere. And there was no destination. Australia is the destination. There was the pink dots just go all around the continent. Yeah. So I was just going to keep going and going and going and going. And, I, you know, there is no destination. It's just go and have fun. And... You know, I, I worked my way up the West Coast, and by, by the time I arrived here and I got here to the West Coast, and I, by the time I got here, it sort of made sense. Literally, you know, and people talk about, oh, it felt good when I arrived, or, or the, the feeling of the, the area felt good. And it did. It felt good when I arrived here. And um, that was 10 years ago. <laughs> you made your way across the country? I, you didn't go, yeah. you didn't follow the perimeter of the country? I followed the bottom per perimeter of the country. Uh, all the way down from Sydney, basically headed west. If you, if you follow a map, sort of going across that, that bottom bite of Australia, the distances are huge. So, you know, you're doing seven or 800 kilometers a day mm -hmm. on my own, mm -hmm. sleeping in the bush, sleeping in the back of the car or whatever, and then just keep driving, keep driving. Um, and then a really good friend of mine, Gavin from Sydney, was due to meet me um, halfway up the west coast so I had a time frame I had to meet him and the weather was completely blown out so we just carried on driving and got up here the weather was good and um, so we stayed here and I you know I thought about it and I thought about it and you know I didn't want to carry on because basically the whole thing came to a grinding halt all right so why well <laughs> as with everything in life when someone's having too good a time um, there are always those who think that that person's having too good a time. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. And they try and, they try and uh, stop that person from having too good a time. So what happened was, was uh, I decided not to pursue things with the website project. I basically just bunkered down and said to myself, I'm going to relocate and 
start off my life again. I'm not going to pursue that website project. I'm not going to pursue web design. I'm going to pursue a life of a professional guide and set that up. It, I'd be stupid not to. I had a bit of resistance basically with the, uh, with the website projects and with what I was pursuing and the direction that I was going with traveling around and having my mates and family and friends come out and fish with me. Uh, it wasn't being accepted basically by some members of the fly fishing fraternity in Australia. Can we just paint a picture yeah. before we move forward? How many people live in Exmouth? 2,000. Okay. That is very, very small. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's obviously a tourist town. Right. People come in to dive with the whale sharks. Yes. There's a lot of fantastic fishing. What other industry is there here? So mainly it's tourism, a lot of fishing. From April, May, June, July, the whale sharks aggregate here and it's one of the uh, highest aggregations of whale sharks that we have in the world. So that brings a lot of people who come here and they come here purely for the diving, the whale shark diving. The humpback whales migrate up the west coast. We're having the biggest numbers of humpback whales migrating up the west coast since they've, they've abolished uh, whaling. And um, that's brought with it huge numbers of tourists that have come uh, and see those and, and now can actually interact. And Exmouth is the only place in Australia where people can actually now get in the water with humpback whales and have in-water interactions. Um, apart from that, uh, a lot of tourists come here in the cooler months. So when it's not summer, our winters are really, really mellow. Um, so it's a fantastic destination for people to arrive and, and enjoy a very mellow winter. It gets pretty warm in summer and there's not much to do in summer. Mm -hmm. uh, apart from fish, and the fishing is really good. And when you got here, how many mm. guiding operations were there? One. So you got some resistance? Shocking. Big time. <laughs> okay. Big time. <laughs> right. So there's 2,000 people. There was one guide. He was here before me, and that's fine. He arrived here, and he focused primarily on one species of fish. Uh, that's fine as well. I saw the opportunity. I said, well, you're in the corner over there focusing on one species of fish. If that species is not interesting to me. I'll focus on a hundred other species of fish. So, and I did that and that's what I've done. Um, and that's also what we're going to talk about. Can you just offhand mm. tell me, just start listing species that you can find here. Here? Yeah. Okay, well. This is my favorite part. Go for it. <laughs> Queenfish, GTs, Permit, Golden Trevally, Brassy Trevallies, Spanish Mackerel, uh, Bluebone, Blue Bastards, Spangled Emperor, Milkfish, uh, sailfish, black marlin, wahoo, dolphin fish, uh, long-tailed tuna, mac tuna, um, different species of mackerel. I could just go on and on <laughs> and on. They're all here. So they're all here at different times of the year as well. So, you know, by me being here and arriving here and being a fisherman of, of, of my whole life, I looked at it as heaven. I, st I still Disneyland. do. This place is, it's beyond heaven. I, I, right. I think this is the best saltwater fishery in the world. Well, I, that's a big comment, April. I think that's a huge comment. It's definitely one of the most attractive multi-species destinations in the world. Mm -hmm. and, and I think a fishery is an important thing where you have, you know, you, you can go to, you can go to the, the, end of the, the end of the earth and have a good fishery there, but you're, you're three, three airline flights and four airline flights and you're living on a, you know, uh, substandard accommodation, that's fine. Exmouth is fantastic. We've got a beautiful airport, really nice restaurants. It makes for a great destination. And having all these fish 
as well, and having all those different species of fish. Oh, and barramundi, we didn't even talk about barramundi. Uh, barramundi, Charles got a barramundi. Beautiful saltwater so. barramundi. And here's the best part, everybody, you don't get eaten by crocodiles here. Right, right. I was just waiting the plastic <laughs> with my daughter all day today. Right. And didn't have to worry about anything eating us. I mean, obviously you're on the lookout for sharks, but her and I caught a ton of fish today and I was able to show her the emus and right. land, obviously, and the whales in the distance and just fish everywhere. It is... Sorry, I'm going to say it again. The best water, the best saltwater <laughs> destination in the world. There is, um, it, it's been a marine park here for 30 years. Okay. Okay, so the government says 30 years ago they had the foresight to turn the Ningaloo uh, Marine Park or they, to create the Ningaloo Marine Park, which is a fabulous idea. Uh, there are places inside the marine park where you can fish and there's places where you cannot fish. Mm -hmm. All right, and that's fine. There's a balance. Um, it's a World Heritage listed marine park as well. So, you know, having that and having that sort of element of acknowledgement that um, it's, it's there to be looked after and it's going to be looked after for years and years to come really makes for a great fishery as well. We don't have commercial fishing. We don't have, uh, you know, commercial longliners offshore. We haven't got commercial netting. There is no uh, uh, big harvesting of the oceans here at all. And uh, yeah, as you say, we haven't got crocodiles, so you know you can walk and wade. It's fantastic. Uh, we haven't got box jellyfish to sting you. You know, there's no dangerous stuff like that, and that's really good. So it it really just adds to it. You know, on a, on a, on an average day, if you want to go fishing here, you you have access to a huge array of different fish. And from a fly fishing perspective, that really puts you you know puts you in the hot seat to be able to target different species using different techniques and different methods, which, which is, which is again, is, is a really cool thing. Mm. And then cobia, that's the other thing. I'm literally just sitting in my... I forgot that I'm one. I'm sitting here thinking about all the species I've seen and, well, I've fished with you, and, and not little fish. I mean, obviously, there are little fish, but when we go out, we see enormous queenfish, mm. enormous giant trevally. I've seen some enormous marlin come up. That Spanish mackerel that, that busted me off was... Ridiculous. The cobia on the flats on the tiger the shark. Cobia was huge. It was <laughs> enormous. The milkfish are huge. It's mm. just, it is so special. So, I was wondering if we could just break some of the fishing down. Sure. That's cool. Yeah, sure. Um, Western Australia is known for that. So, so basically, maybe we don't get huge numbers of of the fish, but we on your day out, you're gonna see big fish. You, and you do. You've been out a couple times with me and, and, and the other guys already. And you do. You get to see big fish. And it's consistently that you'll see the big fish. So, you know, you may fish other places in the world and you'll have lots of medium-sized to small-sized fish. For some guys, that's attractive. But really, this is like the senior school of fly fishing. Mm -hmm. You've got to have your A game. You've got to be able to deliver sometimes big, heavy flies. And they're all going to be generally big. You're going to have shots at big fish. So, if you wanted to break down some of the fish, we'll start with the queenfish. Yeah, let's start with the queenfish. Yeah, it's one of my favorites, and I know that's one of your favorites as well. We, we, we've had some fun. That's probably Australia's iconic sport fish. You get them all across the top end of Australia, all across many, many different parts of Australia. They're pretty much going to take a lot of flies, uh, anything from deceivers to candies to clouses to poppers. I like top water for them, so I like throwing... Uh, poppers. What we have here in Exmouth is we have 365 days of the year there's, there's queenfish on tap and that's in the shallows. So side casting to them uh, in the shallows. I know we've done that a couple times. So moving across the, the flats and the mangrove lines, not dissimilar to your tarp and laid up in the mangroves except these are queenfish and um, you can side cast to them 
and uh, they're generally all big. What's a big one? Just for people who don't even know what it is. Average size out here is going to be a meter, a meter long. So your average size that you see them out here are all going to be a meter to a meter plus. We got a meter 24 fish the other day. So that's a nice, a nice big one on a popper as well. I mean, they launch so at poppers. Love the poppers. They love, they're greedy. They, their whole face is just mouth pretty mm-hmm. much. And so. they jump their absolute right. like, insanity. So we've got those on tap. So those things are, um, you know, they're always available. And where, the, where they live, you get the GTs as well. So, you know, you can fish for GTs in different places. You can fish from wading from the shore. Super difficult. They don't like to come too close to the shore where you can wade. You can fish from the, off the back of the reef and you can fish them around the reefy stuff. You're going to lose fly line. You're going to lose the fish. You want to be fishing for them in the flats where there's not a lot of stuff to break you off. And, if, you know, if you hook a big fish, they can run and, and you know, you just follow it with a boat. Uh, we're actually getting a lot of big GTs on crab flies uh, lately, which is pretty cool. Um, so we're actually fishing for permit on the flats. And, you know, while you're fishing for permit which we have lots and lots of as well. There are uh, GT swimming past or there's queenfish swimming past. You know, sometimes you're not sure what to tie on because there's different fish doing different things on the same flat. You don't have to leave that flat. So, you know, we're catching big GTs on, you know, nine and 10 weight outfits because they're not going to break you off. We're able to land them because the flats are open and, and sort of, uh, there's nothing on the flats to break you off on. So that's it's pretty cool. We've actually gone ahead and landed some real big GTs on eight weights as well, just because the guys seem to be throwing, you know, eight weights with crab flies. And, you know, to watch a, a, a 40, 50 pound GT on its head, smashing your crab fly into the, the bottom, it's quite a sight, you know? <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So are the permit here not on shrimp then? Are they on, on crabs? You can get them on shrimp and crabs. Talk to me about permit fishing here, what mm-hmm. is different about permit fishing in Exmouth compared to, say, maybe Hinchinbrook? Right, absolutely. Uh, Exmouth is one of those locations on the planet where we actually have both species or two species of permit which coincide on the flats. So we get the Indo-Pacific permit, which are the same ones in the Seychelles, beautiful uh, yellow fins and, and obviously silver body super difficult to tempt with a fly. We also get what they call the Aussie permit, or they call them a snub-nosed dart or an oyster cracker, which is what they will call them here in Australia, which is the, uh, the other species. So one is Trachinotus blockeye, the other one's Trachinotus anak. So we get the anak and the blockeye on the same flats, and we've had a couple guys actually catch both species on the same day. I've had uh, uh, myself caught a uh, Indo-Pacific or a block eye, and my buddy on the boats caught an Anak on the same day, on the same flat. So that's quite unique. Do they have uh, similar behavior? Very similar behavior. We find the Anaks generally a little bit bigger and tend to perhaps school. And further up the coast, up here towards Broome and uh, on the east coast, they actually take floating crabs off the surface. And I've seen them take floating crabs. And I've fished for them in Cape York and I've caught them on floating crabs. Um, so they actually come up like a trout and will take a floating crab off the surface. And that's the anak. Whereas the, the, the um, Indo-Pacifics don't. They eat on the bottom. So when you cast a floating crab, are you still stripping it to make it move at all? Or are no, you just no. waiting? You're waiting, yeah. So it's like, a, it's like, it's like um, fishing a dry to a trout. Oh. So you see the fish come up on the flat. You present a, a floating crab in his path. You Maybe you can twitch it once because, you know, crabs will swim along the surface. But the ones we fished for in Cape York, the crabs were actually on 
and Cape York's on the east coast, so it's north of the east coast of Australia. Those little crabs were actually on the leaf litter. They were on the mangrove leaf litter, which was coming out of the mangroves, and they were using the, the leaves as, as a lilo and swimming along with one, one little flipper on the side, and the permit were coming up and tracking the crabs on the leaves, and the permit were coming up and gulping crabs off the surface. And I think you know, we, we got 21 permit in five days between the group or something ridiculous. And um, this is 2004. But th so they eat floating crabs. And uh, were they eating? This is a silly question, but mm. were they eating the leaf as well? Ooh, good question. I, I, you know, I think you'd probably spit it out pretty quickly if you were a permit. You'd go for the crab, you know. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like me if I eat a cheeseburger and there's tomato in there, <laughs> I just sort of sideswipe it. I don't like tomato, so I'll just sort of swipe, side swipe it. But so. you know, like if you get a trout, sometimes you'll see that they've got rocks and all sorts of weird stuff in their right. stomach. I just obviously were not getting a permit, but I'd be curious to see if. All right, I've I've, I've gutted a permit before, by the way. Are they legal to Are they legal to keep here? They're, absolutely, they're not even they're not even in any of the. Uh, Australian um, uh, fishing guides. There is no quota or limit on them. There is no size limit on permit, and they're not even called permit here in Australia. They're called a dart. No way. Yeah. So the um, even if you talk to some of the locals here who live here, and they, you ask them what a permit is, they don't know what it is. I wondered that. Yeah. And everyone always so, talks about dart, and I'm always like, what? Right. Because what it, is it? A common dart. A common I've dart. I've seen the small darts when I'm beach fishing. Right. That's tracker notice bottler. Oh. So that's a, they're all Trachinotus family. Yeah. So they're all part of that same dart uh, family. So yeah, it, it, it's called a dart. So um, anyway, so the, the permit here, um, we get a lot of them and um, we get them basically uh, more in the winter month, uh, more in the summer months. Winter months, we have caught the odd permit, but less numbers. So pretty much from October through to March is our sort of the favorable permit season. Some days you're going to see 20 to 30 fish on the flat. I know that when I took you out, we saw a bunch of fish before Charles started casting on the back of the boat, and that messed up the permit bite. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, the thing is out here, you have to be pretty focused uh, on, on the permit because there are other fish on the flats too. Oh, it's so, and it's so distracting. It's very distracting, yeah. So you go along and suddenly there's queen fish, suddenly there's GT, you know, oh, shit, you, you, you change your fly, oh, and then suddenly there's a permit. So, you, you, you know, you've got to... You've got to choose the time that you want to fish for them and be focused and, and sort of almost ignore the other things. And that takes a lot of, a lot of discipline to do. Uh, it's, you know, you watch a meter-long fish swim past you, you know, don't throw it at and go for the permit. So, uh, yeah, there are a lot of permit here. Um, like I said, I, I have, you know, we nicked one in the, in the gills once. That it took the crab deep. It had no choice. I kept it, but dissected it, opened it up, stacked full of crabs. The stomach was absolutely stacked, completely full of crabs and, uh, you know, not far off the crab flies that we're using and there was nothing else in there. What stacked. color are the crabs? It was a sand crab, so a speckled sand crab, so tan, white and yellow sort of underbody and little flippery legs with white and yellow trim on them. Okay. So generally here for the, for the permit, we're just fishing tanned crabs with yellow and white parts on them. They're not easy. They're not easy in any part of the country or any part of the world for that matter. But um, we get a lot of permit and, uh, you know, fortunately being able to, to go out of here on any given day and find them, it's, uh, it's pretty cool having them available. Yeah. We, were out, we were out last week and uh, saw a whole school of them and the water was 18 degrees centigrade, which is ridiculously cold. 
Mm-hmm. So, so does that change their behavior as well? Uh, they'll come onto the flat and be happier to feed on the flat when the water's warm. So when you get to 26, 27, 28 degrees, it's, it's on. You know that you're going to see them. What are you so. looking for when you're out there? Because you know how with the other, with, if you're in Belize, for mm-hmm. example, you're looking for black tails. Mm-hmm. What are you looking for here? Uh, here the tails are golden yellow and sort of uh, a burnt, burnt brown to golden yellow, very translucent shapes. It's like most fish, uh, if you see a fish tracking you on the flat and he's coming straight at you, you can see the, the longitudinal shape of that fish quite easily. The moment they turn sideways, it's pretty tough. Mm-hmm. So looking at those fish and, 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 and looking at them straight on, they're quite easy to spot. They're not too difficult to spot. You're looking for that shape, that subtle shape. For example, comparing them to a queenfish. Queenfish swims high on the surface, really dark on the back, really easy to spot. They look like just laid up dark fish right up high. I remember them looking really blue-green. Right, big green backs, dark green on the back, some of them. Uh, And they're really easy to spot, that's the queenfish. Your your GTs, they're a little bit further down in the water column, and your permit, same thing, they're further down in the water column. Why Um, do you think queenfish have those dots down their side? There's got to be some sort of reason in nature, you think? Mm, very good question. Same thing as the dart. You know, it's all to do with their lateral line and all to do with, um, you know, the, the way that they're connected to the environment around them. When you fish for a queenfish and you, and you put the fly 20 foot away, he still knows it's there. He, he knows something's there, um, even if he's not facing it. So I'll have to look further into why they're there. That's cool, but you just said something interesting. So 20 feet away, and it knows it's there. Mm. Okay, so put yourself in this situation, which I'm sure you've been in lots with clients. Your client makes a cast 20 feet away. That's not where they meant to land the fly, but the permit is still facing in that direction. Mm. Do you want your client to pick up and recast, mm-hmm. or do you want to wait till that fish is turned before your client picks up the fly to recast? Very good question. Um, you know, there are people who've written books on permit fishing. You should do this. You should do that. And, uh, the reality is, is that I, I uh, talking about permit, I, I like the client and I like myself. I like to get that fly really close into the fish while he's looking down, while he's feeding, or even while he's tracking across the flat. 20 foot away is too far away. And, and to be honest, if, you're, if you have the ability to lift the line off the water in one false cast, shoot line into your back cast instead of do a 10 degree direction change and slip line into your forward cast and represent without flapping around and doing three or four false casts, you're probably going to have a, a second shot. If you lift the line up and you're doing three or four false casts and you're changing around and standing on the line, it's over. So, What's the number one thing that you see happen on your boat that results in a lost permit specifically? Just people who... You remember those toys as kids when you... you, you you get like a little toy and you press the button. It's like it's a plastic toy, like a little uh, thing on strings. And you push the button underneath the toy and it goes all floppy. And then you let go of the button and they sort of stand up again. Did you guys have those? We had those in South Africa. I see a lot of guys. I see a lot of guys in the front of the boat. You say permit and they literally go wobbly. It's yeah. like you've pressed the button on you know, <laughs> and they, you know, I've even had guys where I've said, listen, that's a mullet over there with yeah. yellow fins, you know, make a cast at it. You know, I think people beat themselves up about permit, you know, because it's this elusive thing. And I've, I've watched guys catch numerous fish, which, which are predatory fish, fish which eat flies, uh, uh, looking forward. So, you know, queenfish and trevally and, and GTs, they look forward and they predate going forward, whereas a permit likes to look down. 
and, and, and a lot of guys make that mistake and they, they, they get themselves all beat up and, and, and so they're still thinking that the thing is gonna eat going forward as opposed to eat going down. And uh, that's a really technical part of the fishing is that you can't make the cast and start stripping as if it's gonna be a, a predatory eat. You have to tap into the way that they feed. You have to get that, that crab down to the bottom. So we use heavily weighted crabs and get the, get the crab onto the bottom where he's looking for his food. Uh, and that, a lot of guys struggle with that. A lot of guys struggle with that concept there. You know, once you hook up, it's not, it's not too difficult to stay connected, you know, if you, if you hook up and so on. But getting to the point where you have your crab in front of a fish which is feeding and you're doing the right thing with the crab is, is a long way down the path for a lot of anglers. You, you, a lot of guys struggle with that. So, you know, I work with the guys. Say, hey, listen, you know, try something like this. Try something like that. You know, uh, work on your casting a bit. Let's, you know, let's, let's work on slipping line a bit further because you keep missing the shot. And, and you know, if, if working on things that make mistakes, people make mistakes. Jeez, we're all not perfect, are we? But if you can get closer and closer to joining the dots, you're going to catch more fish, and especially with a permit. So it's pretty cool sharing the experience of people here where, you know, they come back after their first trip and they go, I've caught them all. I've got to get myself a permit. You know, and I think that's the... That's, that a lot, of, a lot of anglers around the world share that same dream where they caught this, caught that, caught this, caught that, never caught a permit, and eventually the whole trip just turns into, I've got to catch a permit, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, um, I watched you and Charles literally tearing each other apart on the boat mm -hmm. because Charles was wanting to catch small fish behind and you were having shots of permit, and I think your lines <laughs> crossed or something like that. And he's roll casting to mullet. Right, he's roll casting. Roll casting to yeah. mullet. Right, right, right. So. Who does that? Right. Dropping beer cans and shit on the bottom of the boat, making noise. Oh my right, God. right, right. And that does that stuff doesn't help for permit fishing at all. So no. So do you believe that making noise on the boat does indeed scare permit away? Yeah. So we we use a trolling motor. So basically, I'll I'll motor with the boat to the flats where I want to fish. I'll switch my main outboard motor off, and I'll deploy the um, electric motor on the bow of the boat. Super quiet. Keep quiet. No no knocking and bumping. You have to be super quiet. They're, they're an elusive, spooky fish, extremely good eyesight, extremely connected to the, the water around them. You make a bad cast, it's, you know, they're going to spook. If you move around the boat, they're going to spook. If you make too many false casts, they're going to spook. So, yeah, some of the other fish are a lot more forgiving. Um, Permit is like the senior school, you know. It's the, it's the elusive one that keeps getting away. It is. Now, yeah. why do you not pull a boat? In fact, I don't think I've ever seen a, flat, a proper flats boat on this side of the continent. Right. Very good question. Uh, Western Australia has its own set of rules and regulations around a commercially certified boat that you can guide from. They won't allow us to have a polling platform on the boat because it's dangerous. Oh. Yeah. So to, be, to stand above your motor and to be polling on the flat is deemed dangerous. You could potentially fall off and fall into your into your motor or fall off the boat, uh, which does make sense. I mean, if you think about it, it is. Uh, also, the water here and, and the boats, um, a, a skiff, which is uh, not high off the water, so it hasn't, hasn't got a, a, a high gunnels or high sides of the boat, is a, a, a lot less wind on a skiff, so you're able to pull the boat in skinny water and so on. We can't get those boats here commercially certified to drive as guide boats. We have to have higher gunnels and high sides on the boat. So you immediately have more wind and more windage on the boat. So there's more effect of the wind on the boat. So a pole really doesn't make any sense. And it's pretty difficult to pole here with a bigger boat. So we use a trolling motor um, and uh, use that electric motor. 
Now, speaking of wind, I remember you telling me once that you have guys book, what do you say, book for two weeks because you're likely going to get blown out for seven of those 14 days? No, no, no. So what I do, what I do is I, we always going to get some kind of wind anywhere in the coast, any, any coastal town. So I allow for about 20% of the week of wind. So I say to the guys, come for a week, we'll fish five and you've got two days somewhere in those two days. Oh. So, you know, 20%. That sounds, that sounds right. Actually. It's yeah. about right. Yeah. Even on our week here, we're here from Marlin. Unfortunately, right. we're not getting to fish with you on this trip, but right. five days and we've lost one to wind. Right. And yeah. you, and, and in general, you lose one or two. So I know that. So there's no point saying, Hey, come for seven and we'll fish for seven because we're not, but it also gives guys a chance to, you know, go and do other stuff, go snorkeling, go and have a whale shark dive and go and, you know, uh, tie some flies or, you know, practice some casting. So what happens is guys then come for seven days, we fish for five, they've got two days in, uh, of lay days. Some people come for 10 days, we fish seven days. Some people come for 14 days and we fish 10 days. Now something that you do that's very interesting to me and a major mystery is uh, fishing those mangroves. Mm. So when we, I don't want to give any of your spots away, but when we fish the mangroves, mm. wherever they may be, mm. wink, wink, nudge, nudge, mm. you're really in tune with what's going on with the current. Tides, it, yeah, tides. The tides. And yeah. obviously, well, the tides kind of make them, it feels like I'm fishing a river system in there. Right. And right. in fact, even when we're fishing for bear mundi in there, it feels like I'm river fishing because right. we're right. swinging flies. And just talk to me a little bit about that. Right. So so mangroves anywhere, I mean, mangroves rely on the uh, water coming in and water going out. So there has to be dry and wet and dry and wet. Mangroves won't survive purely in the water or purely on land without the water. So they have to have that incoming and outgoing tide. So the places that we go, I mean, in the, in the Exmouth Gulf, the mangrove line shoreline runs for probably 80 kilometers, you know, so all up and down, right down the bottom of the Gulf and all the way up the eastern side of the Gulf. And it's heavily, heavily dominated by the tide. So just think of it as a, a desert that floods, okay? So you've got water out, it's dry, that mangroves are dry. And as the water comes up and floods into the mangroves, so too the fish will move in and um, it depends on the height of the tide as well. So if you're fishing around a neap tide, your water's not gonna come up to the bottom of the mangroves. So that's gonna happen twice a month. You, ha you fish on a spring tide, your water's right up inside the mangroves and flooding up in the back of the mangroves. That happens twice a month. So you can pick and choose your days where you should be going and you can see how it works. It's like a jigsaw puzzle of understanding the environment and understanding the tide, the wind, the weather, the clouds, and putting it all together and saying, well, I need, if I go there, I'm probably going to have two or three hours of window of opportunity to fish for that species of fish and then go to the next place and the next place and so on. And so I guess that's what local knowledge is about. You know, 10 years later, you understand the ebb and flow of nature and how that all works and how it's connected. Because you can run across and go there and there's not enough water on the flats. There's no fish. Ah, you shouldn't have chosen that day. So, How much of your success would you attribute just to simply knowing that and fine-tuning those jigsaw puzzle pieces? It's, it's all about that. I think it, to be a successful guide anywhere on the planet, you have to be connected to the environment that you're, you're working. And you have, to, you have to have a deep appreciation of that environment and of how it works and how, how, how you know, why am I going to that place? I mean, if, put it this way. If there were a place where I could go that was always easy to go and it was always fish there, it would be too easy. It's not, it's not, that's not what being a professional guide is about. You have to go, you have to take people to places where that place doesn't exist in a couple hours time because the tide's gonna be changed or those fish, 
that window of opportunity doesn't, doesn't exist in a couple hours because it's going to close. So having that understanding of the, the, the interaction of tide and wind and, and the behaviors of those fish is, I mean, it's of utmost importance to fish that. We have about a two meter fluctuation in tide. So from the high to the low on, on average, okay, on, on, the, on the spring tide. And on neap tide is about 50 centimeters. So there's not a lot of movement going on. So if you understand how the puzzle works and you go, well, that flat's pretty good today, okay, and it's on about a, a tide of, you know, one meter height, okay, every time I go there, it's gonna be good, okay? Maybe, maybe not. So you need to keep going back to that spot at that height and go, oh, there's too much water or there's not enough water. And you start building the puzzle and you start putting the whole thing together. And, those, it's, and that's where you realize like, wow, those fish come along and they behave like that because of these factors. Okay, cool, oh. You start piecing it all together. And that's how I know, well, if I take you there at that time, it's gonna be, you're gonna have shots and you know, you tie this fly on because you're gonna have shots at those fish. People go, how the hell did you know that? Mm -hmm. I live here, this is what I do. I associate you with that puzzle. Right. I think about you on the phone saying, well, you guys, we're gonna leave at this time and we're gonna go here because of this X, Y, and Z. <laughs> like, you're like this big calculator, but right, with right. fishing. Right, well, and, and people say, how do, you, how do you know that stuff? Well, it's, it's what I do, it's what I, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's what I do. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's how nature works. If you're connected to it, if you're connected to the environment and you appreciate it and you, you work with it, that's how it works. When you first came here, mm. I know you don't want to give away too many secrets. No, I'm happy, to I'm happy to talk about anything. What were the two major pieces that you put together and went, mm. oh, whoa? Mm. Very good question again. I think that um, the process of trial and error, you know, when I arrived here, nobody showed me anything. <laughs> the only thing I got shown was a middle finger. Yeah. All right. So I was like, okay, I get it. You know, that's fine. So to, to, before I even had the first guy standing on my boat as a, as, as a, you know, as a professional guide now taking people fishing, I, I spent two years of my life here uh, working it all out, driving around, figuring stuff. Where should I go? Where should I not go? How does it all work? And it's not like one species of fish. There's many different species of fish. They all eat differently at different times and behave differently. You know, it wasn't necessarily one or two pieces of the puzzle. This is like one of those difficult puzzles where, where, where everything looks the same and, and how do you put them all together? And one by one, it was very satisfying to be able to tick off species that I could catch with a fly rod. Ah, oh, oh, cool, I've got that one. This one eats this and this one eats that. And then you tick, 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 tick. So that I knew, okay, this is how you catch tuna. This is how you catch queenfish. This is where the GTs are gonna be. You catch permit like this. And uh, it, it, it was a really a whole bunch of mini victories, you can say. And still is, I learn stuff every day. I learn stuff all the time. What's the you hardest know? one, the species? The hardest species? For you. I'm still to catch a blue bastard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a, I'm still to catch one. So it's a painted sweet lip, um, or they call them a blue bastard. They call them a mother-in-law fish. They're terrible eating, so they, they suggest you give them to your mother-in-law. <laughs> I haven't caught one. I've got, my clients have caught a couple. Super difficult fish to, to tempt. Uh, I think there's a bit of hype about them now. Some, some of the guys and some of my fellow South African mates, they went across to the, uh, the top of the uh, East Coast recently and had some really oh, good yeah. fishing How there. Oh yeah, how did they do on that trip? Yeah, I think they did really well. I think they had permit blue bastards and whatever else. I think they're playing their, uh, their cards pretty close to the chest because they've got a video coming out or a video part coming out or something yeah, like that. Yeah. But I think the guys fell in love with a variety of species and, and those species. 
you know, a, a great big 20 pound fish that's blue, that's tailing in front of you and big rubbery lips and it's gonna eat you fly if you do the right thing. It's a pretty cool thing. Now let's talk a little bit about the geography of Exmouth. It's not like we're just some small city along the coastline. Right. We're on, what is it, like a point of a gulf? Can you explain? Right, we're, we're on a big peninsula, halfway up the continent. So if you look at a map of Australia, we're on the northwest corner, halfway up the continent, right on that, on that corner. There's a little peninsula that juts out and uh, Exmouth is situated on that, on that peninsula. The Americans actually developed Exmouth in the 50s and 60s, and it was built here for the, um, uh, for the Cold War. They had, they had a posting here with American uh, military. Oh, and so that military base is an American military it's base? It's an American military base. How come you still can't take photos at the airport? Because that's a military base too. But an Australian? It's an Australian Royal Air Force airport. Okay. So they call it a RAF base, RAAF base. So a lot of the houses in town were actually built by the Americans. So the block homes and the bunker homes and some of the houses that you see were built by the Americans. And we have a huge set of towers at the end of the peninsula, at the end of the Cape, uh, which they call a VLF array, so very low frequency array. American military built that as a communication link in the Pacific and South Pacific in their communication link for the military. Huh. Why Exmouth? Why here? A lot of sunshine, uh, no clouds, no mountains around and very exposed on that northwest corner of, of Australia. And in fact, in the 70s, there were some protests from Australians saying, we don't want you here. You're, you're, you're actually making uh, Exmouth a, a target, uh, a military target. Oh. Yeah. So the town itself basically uh, was developed in the, in, in, in the mid-50s and 60s. It's a pretty new town with a very heavy American military influence. The American military left and some of the buildings and some of the facilities are still here at the, at the, at the old military base, which is very interesting. You can take a drive around there. There's so cool. Tempin Bowling Alley, there's a cafe, there's a softball pitch and stuff, all overgrown. It's like and a ghost town. It's Honestly, a ghost town. they should film a horror movie in there. Right, right, right. Well, you know, there's, there's food for thought. <laughs> um, so, you know, and then the history of Exmouth as far as uh, being a fishing town and a fishing destination, and especially a fly fishing destination, is very new. The town has come from a bit of a, uh, I wouldn't say a dark past, but, a, you know, military, and then a lot of oil and gas. So we have oil and gas rigs and, and platforms offshore, 30 miles offshore. This northwest corner up here has got huge reserves of oil and gas and it provides massive amounts of income for the Western Australian um, economy. There used to be whaling, commercial whaling. There used to be commercial fishing for turtles here. No kidding. Yeah. But how come there is no commercial fishing here? That's, a, I mean, it's amazing, mm. but it's also surprising to me. Um, we have a commercial prawning industry. Mm -hmm. So they have prawn boats, which have been working again for, I think they started in the 70s. And there's six or eight prawn boats, all owned by the same company. And they work in the Gulf. They work in, and it's, everything's regulated. Everything's really heavily regulated. They work in demarked areas. So there's A, B, C, D blocks in the Gulf where they can work. So they work that area. Then they work the next area, the next area. They've been doing that for 40, 50 years. Those are the, and, and then there's one or two boats which go offshore and provide the, West, the, the seafood to West Australia. I mean, people like to eat seafood. You've got to get it from somewhere. They go out and they, they harvest. Everything's regulated. Nothing is, we're not talking illegal commercial operations here. We're talking legal commercial operations here. So these guys are all government regulated. Everything has to be documented and everything has to be uh, weighed and quotas and and. Um, the correct amounts and correct sizes and so on, everything. One of the things I want people to envision is if they're looking at a map, 
this, what it, so it's the Gulf on the one side, right? Mm -hmm. So the Indian Ocean is on the left side of the peninsula mm -hmm. um, and all your fish on that side is it's a whole unique fishery there from all your blue water open pelagic fish right. to your flats and the Ningaloo Reef. Um, and then that Ningaloo Reef stretches up the west coast. So we've got a, an amazing, amazing reef, which is the Ningaloo Reef, which is basically one of the only fringing reefs on the western side of a continent. And a fringing reef is basically a reef which is right on the shore. So on the east coast, you've got the barrier reef. Mm -hmm. It's 40 miles out. So you want to go to the barrier reef, you want to see it, you've got to get on a huge boat, drive out, you see the reef. It's a barrier reef. It's a barrier to the land. Fringing reef is right here on the shore. So you can take a car and a sandwich and a backpack and walk straight out and the coral's right there. So we have that reef. It runs about 200 miles up and down the west coast. And that's protected as the Ningaloo Marine Park. Right. All right. And that marine park stretches around, comes around the peninsula, and then we have the Exmouth Gulf, which is basically about 80 kilometers long by about 40 kilometers wide. And I've taken you guys pretty much down and across a couple times, mm -hmm. and that's where, you know, everything from Spanish mackerel, tuna, queenfish, GTs, permit, and so on and so on. But then just right on the other side, there's all the billfish. Yes. I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's Disneyland. Right. So, and on that note there, I mean, if you wanted to have a chat about that, Exmouth really is one of the places where you can consistently target sailfish and black marlin with a fly rod. Um, there's also blue marlin. Are there stripes here as well? Blue marlin, striped marlin. Uh, you stick in close behind the reef, you get your sailfish. A little bit further out, you get your, your black marlin. A little bit further out, you get your striped marlin. A little bit further out, you get blue marlin. And at night, if you feel like fishing, you can get your broad-billed swordfish as well. They're all big and uh, rather too big for the fly. But so you do say. do some of those trips? Oh, absolutely I do. I mean, I get a lot of guys who want to do that. So, you know, what happens is I get a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of fishermen arrive and, you know, they've never... Australia's exotic. You know, wow, I'm in Australia, this is cool. I want to see and I want to fish and I want to, you know, experience everything. So a lot of the guys who come and fish with me, I'd say 90% of the people who come and fish want the full experience. They want to see whales, turtles, they want to fish for different things. They want to, you know, they want to look at the night sky and see all the stars and, you know, have that whole Australian vibe. And then I say to them, hey, there are sailfish in Marlin right here. You want to give it a go? And, you know, the guys are, well, I've never done that before. Um, it's fine. They're perfect size to catch on a fly rod. I can take you out there. We can give it a go. And I've fortunately been able to share these amazing experiences with people where, you know, I've got hundreds of guys, their first black marlin or, or first sailfish, first billfish on a fly rod. You know, we're talking three miles, four miles from shore. So not huge distances. We could be inshore chasing different things inshore inside the lagoon for the morning, have lunch, pop out the lagoon, put the teasers out, and we could have billfish behind the boat for the afternoon. Just like that. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 